God, we thank you for uh, this moment. God, we thank you that this is all about you. God, that our hearts long to give you praise. Our hearts long to hear from you in your word. And so, God, I pray that you would meet us in that longing. God, that you would speak a word that we desperately need to hear today. God, I pray for those who are here today who might be discouraged. God, who might feel like they're far from you. God, who just feel like they have a lot on their plate. God, I pray that you'd minister to them by your word and through your grace. And Lord, help us to exalt Jesus. So pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when that alarm went off this morning, what was your first thought? I hope it was awesome. It's Sunday. I get to rehearse and respond to the gospel. And as we uh, learned last week, the purpose of corporate worship is exactly that, to rehearse and to uh, respond to the gospel. So last week, if you were here with us, we kicked off a new sermon series about uh, corporate worship and just what, what do we do here on Sundays when we gather together and, uh, and it was an important uh, Sunday just to provide some vision for uh, what we hope is accomplished each and every week as we gather. Well, last week, I mentioned four paradoxes as it relates to corporate worship that makes this topic both important and also challenging. I just want to read those for us before we dive into our topic today. Number one, we looked at how worship is ordinary, but it's also special. Number two, we looked at worship is personal and also corporate. Then number three, we looked at worship is inward and also outward. And then fourth, worship is unifying and it's also controversial. So those four hopefully will show up during our time together as we look at the topic of corporate singing. So one of the things that I hope that you'll see this morning in our time together is that singing is not just the warm-up before the sermon. That singing is an incredibly vital and important aspect of the spiritual maturity of our church. And singing is really powerful. Like there are very few other things that can stir our hearts and our emotions uh, more than what singing actually does. And if you notice, singing is really, really important in our culture. Just to give you a couple of examples, what do we tend to do when it's someone's birthday? We sing them happy birthday song. Or what happens when we're trying to teach our kids the ABCs? We teach them the ABC song. What do we tend to do when we're really happy and we're by ourselves in our car or in the shower? We tend to, to sing. What happens uh, when sports teams win? Or yesterday, college football teams win. What do they do together after that game? They tend to sing a song revolving around their school. Singing is deeply embedded in the fabric of our humanity. And no other group of people sings more regularly than the church. And so this is a really important topic for us to talk about today. Now, as we dive in, I want to just um, share the big idea for today that's going to help kind of anchor our time. And you'll notice that this is really centered around the theme of unity or harmony. So here's the big idea. Congregational singing should express the unity of God's people created by the gospel. So I want us to see that singing not only shapes us each week, but singing also demonstrates something that is fundamentally true about the people of God. Let me read for us verse 14. That's kind of the target of what the people of God should be aiming at. Paul says, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
Okay, so we're gonna look at what harmony, what unity looks like and how singing plays a role in that. All right, so three sections this morning in Colossians 3, all revolving around unity. Number one, we're gonna look at the basis of our unity in verse 11. Secondly, we'll look at the flavor of our unity. What should our unity look like and feel like? And then thirdly, we'll look at the expression of our unity, namely congregational singing. So here's number one, the basis of our unity from verse 11. Paul explains why we are unified as the people of God. Look with me at verse 11. Paul says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, Paul begins this really important section talking about the fact that because Christ dwells in the people of God, we now have a new identity. And Paul makes a really important and profound statement about the gospel and what Jesus has accomplished. He says that the gospel is powerful enough to transcend all issues that want to divide us. He says that no matter how divisive an issue might be, the gospel is powerful enough to actually unite us. The reason why I share that with you is because verse 11, Paul gives us a list of categories of people that wanted nothing to do with each other. Jews and Greeks, they hated each other. Circumcised and uncircumcised couldn't agree about anything. Slaves and frees, they, they couldn't get along and so on and so forth. Paul is saying to the people of God, that's not who you are anymore. He's talking to the Jews and Greeks. Don't, don't operate out of that reality anymore. You are now unified in Jesus because Christ is all and in all. See, so he's making a, a comment about how powerful the gospel really is. That the gospel is able to break down the strongest barriers between people. The gospel doesn't care what kind of background you come from, what differences you might have with one another, even in the same church, what type of emotionally charged, charged issues that might possibly divide us, like worship and singing. What Paul is saying here is that there is something that unifies us at the deepest parts of our being, and it is our identity in Jesus. That there's something that we have in common with one another at the foundational level that we need to operate out of and live from, not what we have in common or what we disagree with on the surface. And that is our identity in Jesus, that he provides the basis for us actually living in a harmonious relationship. Now, this is really important, especially in the context of congregational singing. Congregational singing can be a topic that can divide people in the church, there's a reason why that phrase is coined as a worship war, that our singing and our worship can be a, an emotional issue. And so within the context of that, we need to understand that Jesus provides something deep enough and powerful enough in the gospel that can actually unite us. I like how D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of that sort. Christians come together, not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they all have been loved by Jesus himself, 
They commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. So in this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus's sake. That's what Jesus has created. He has created the basis of our harmony with one another. And that provides kind of the foundation for our understanding of the people of God and what we do when we gather. Now, the question I wanna pose for us this morning is, that's fine and that's nice, but what happens if you have a disagreement with somebody in your church? What happens if you have real differences? What, what happens if someone offends you or wrongs you? What, what do you do then? Like Christ is all and in all is, is a cute little phrase, but, but what does that look like in action? Well, that uh, takes us to number two here. We're gonna look at the, the flavor of our unity. In other words, what are the symptoms of our unity if we really are all in Christ and that is our identity? What does that look like and what does that feel like? Well, Paul unpacks that for us and, and actually provides a really helpful game plan for how to protect the unity in our church. And Paul gives us the flavor of our unity here in verses 12 through 15 by telling us to put on certain virtues. He tells us to put on or to clothe, our, clothe ourselves with virtues that foster community marked by harmony. That these virtues, if you notice, stand in contrast to the vices in chapter three, verse five and nine, which want to cause division and dissension in the body of Christ. If you look at verse, verses five and six, that, that list is something that should not take place in the body of Christ. Impurity, covetousness, sexual morality, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. So Paul is now providing a list of virtues that stand in contrast to those vices. And in doing so, he helps us to navigate the application of the gospel when we have disagreements with one another, when we have different preferences, different opinions, when we've been wronged, how are we to respond? Now, before I get to the list of virtues here, I just wanna point out obvious observation here, but it's one worth mentioning that Paul gives us a command here to put on these virtues because he knows that we're gonna need it. That Paul assumes when you have a group of people that are together called the church from all walks of life with different backgrounds, different struggles, different ways of thinking, there will be conflicts. There'll be moments where someone does wrong you, hopefully not intentionally, but but sometimes that'll happen in the church. If you've been at the church for longer than two weeks, you know that to be true. And so Paul tells us and commands us to put on the following qualities. He says, put on compassionate hearts, put on kindness, humility, meekness, which could also be translated as gentleness. It's, it's an interesting word. It's, it's basically the quality of not being overtly impressed by a sense of one's own self importance. And then the fifth one there is patience. It's a really helpful list. This is a list of what should mark the church, especially when they gather together. Now, the reason why putting on these virtues is so important is not only because each and every one of us who claim the name of Jesus, we're, we're responsible to make the gospel visible when we gather together, that we are responsible to to put the gospel on display 
based on how we interact with one another. And one way that we do that is by living out these virtues. And yet it's, that's not, we not only live those things out and it's not only important to do so because of that, but we live out these qualities in order to make verse 11 true in our church. That because Christ is in all and is all, that he gives us a new identity, living out these qualities actually makes that true that we are saying what unifies us and what creates harmony with us is Jesus and not our personal preferences. It's not these other things that might divide us. It's not these things that we might disagree upon, but it's the fact that Jesus has bought us with his own blood. Now, when you get to verse 13, Paul starts to put these characteristics in action, okay? So it's one thing to have these five virtues but it's something else to see what it looks like uh, practically. And what he does in verse 13 is he gives us two participles to help us live out our harmony that further creates the flavor of our unity. The two participles are to bear with one another and to forgive each other. Consider the first one here, bearing with one another. Jesus actually uses the same phrase. He uses it negatively in Matthew 17, 17, he's talking to the unbelieving and perverse generation. And he says, how long shall I put up with you? Okay, now that's in the negative. Paul puts it now in the positive, And he says to bear with one another. That this should mark us as believers who are part of the same body. But there are times when you're gonna have to put up with other, with other people in the church. You're gonna have to bear with one another because we're all sinners within the same church. The second participle there is forgiving each other. Again, second way we can put these five virtues in action. This means offering free grace to those who have wronged us or offended us. Again, there will be times when there is a grievance against you, but, but notice the outline of response here. How are you to respond when you've been wronged? How are you to respond when, when you don't agree with something or you have different preferences? The, the response here is not gossip. The response here is not to sit in a room together and talk about that individual. The response here is not to just stuff that issue and hope it goes away. But the correct response here is to bear with one another and to forgive each other. That's the response. That's how we make the gospel visible. You like how real this is? Like Paul, Paul's not holding back any punches. Like this, this is church here. Paul assumes you have a group of people who think differently, express themselves in worship differently, come from different backgrounds. There will be times of differences and times in which you are offended. And yet the, the power of the gospel is seen and is demonstrated when that group of people chooses to live out these qualities and to forgive each other and to bear with one another. The gospel's at work when, when you decide, look, I know I've been offended. Look, I know I disagree with you, but, but I've made a covenant with you and I'm staying here for the long haul. Look, that, that's a declaration that the gospel is true and that the gospel is actually powerful. See, if we, if we treat the, the local church like we treat restaurants or, or maybe gym memberships that we have, that doesn't speak to the power of the gospel. So if you, if you have a membership at LA Fitness and, and someone offends you there, 
Or someone takes your favorite locker or there's an equipment that doesn't work for weeks and weeks on end. What do we tend to do? We tend to leave and find a new membership, right? Or, or a restaurant who doesn't serve us on point or the, the, the service was slow or whatever it is. We, we're not gonna go back there. We're gonna go to a different restaurant. And we have a temptation to take that same kind of consumeristic mentality into the church rather than saying, no, 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 the gospel is the priority and I can make the gospel visible in applying these qualities. You see how countercultural that is? See how powerful that is when the outside world looks at the church who says, man, you guys have some issues, but you're, you're family. Like you're, you're staying together for the long haul. That, that speaks to a reality that the culture and the world just cannot explain. And then you get to verse 14 again, which I think is, is the bullseye of the people of God. This is something that we should be striving after to put on love so we can live together in perfect harmony. That love is this powerful and unifying force. In fact, compassion and kindness and humility, meekness and patience, they can't reach their full power and their full ability unless they're unified and empowered by love. In fact, love, not not the way that culture defines it, not, not the way that culture's kind of hijacked it to mean doing whatever you think is best or, or serving the needs of yourself, but loving here biblically means dying to yourself. It means putting the needs of others ahead of your own. And then again, Paul goes on, verse 15. Again, further, he helps us. This is the game plan of what to do when, when we're trying to live out our unity. He says, let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This is an important verse. Again, the, the peace of Christ, rule in your hearts. This could mean the activity of an umpire who makes decisions in contested situations. This verb means control. That the way that we are to live out our unity is to allow like the peace of Christ to be the determining factor in the decisions that we make, especially in times in which we have disagreements. That peace should be the issue that is given preference over competing concerns and interests. Look, I studying this week, I was like, man, this is this is helpful. Like this is really good stuff when you get into the weeds and, and you kind of flesh out what, what do you do when you disagree with somebody or when someone has offended you in the body of believers. And I think the point is well taken that when you do have a disagreement or when you have been offended, there is something more important that is at stake than just that little issue. But the whole church and the unity of the church is on the line. And so we take these issues seriously to live out the gospel. When I ask you this morning, does, does this list describe you today? Like when, when you have been offended or when you have personal preferences that are unmet or di- different disagreements, it, would you be described as someone who's patient and kind, humble? Do, do you bear with one another? Do you forgive each other? Does that actually describe you? Like I just wanna say, I think our church does a really good job at living this list out. I mean, even, even last week, just a, a superficial example, but I think it, it's a point well taken. If you were here first hour, it was like 110 degrees, right? Like if you're sitting there, you're thinking, man, it's so hot in here. Like my preference would be that it's actually comfortable in here. And yet there were people who came back today because they prioritized the gospel and not their personal preference. 
And you can take that principle, and there are dozens and dozens of examples, especially as a young church who's just starting up, where we're probably not meeting the needs of everybody, and yet you guys do a phenomenal job living this list out, knowing that the gospel is foundational and the gospel is actually the priority. And so you take all of this, verses 12 through 15, and this is the flavor. This is what the church should feel like, look like, and be like. Now, number three, not only do we see the basis of our unity, not only do we see the the flavor of our unity, but we also see the expression of our unity, the expression of our unity. Now, Paul is gonna unpack this for us in verses 16 and 17, but the way that we actually express our unity is through congregational singing, through congregational singing. When I played college basketball, uh, my freshman year of college, we did something as a team that I absolutely despised. In my freshman year, we, we would do this thing after warmups and, and after the, the player introductions, right before the ref would throw the ball up in the air and the game would start, me and my teammates, what we would do is we would get in this circle and we'd put our arms on each other's sh- shoulders and we'd kind of like rock back and forth. And that's probably all the dancing I'll do for you forever and ever. But we would just do this rocking motion and then we'd start like chanting. And we had kind of like this, this ritual where we were almost like kind of barking at each other and trying to get each other pumped and excited for the game. And so we'd like rock back and forth and, and we'd get louder and louder and louder. And then we'd start jumping up and down, just, just yelling. And then the team captain would say, all right, together on three, one, two, three, together. And we'd all say it together in a unified voice. Now, I hated that when I was a freshman. Like I did, like the first time I'm like, what, what is this? Like, let's just play basketball. Like I'm not, I'm not here for like making myself look silly in front of a group of people, unless I'm wearing a T-Rex outfit. But I, I don't wanna do this motion. I just wanna play ball. And we did it the first time and we did it the second time, the third time. And about halfway through the season, I actually started to look forward to it. And by the time I was a senior, like I was the captain that was leading the chance. Like I, I loved that because I started to understand the purpose behind it. See, the reason why we did that little ritual, that little chant was we were trying to communicate to everybody in the gym, especially our opponents, that we were not just a group of individuals who were gonna go on the court and do their own thing. No, 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 we were a group of individuals who were together unified and we were going to play in that manner. And so doing that chant wasn't just to be silly, but it was to express our unity and it was to reinforce our unity with each other that we are together. Tell you this much, me as a shooting guard who wanted to shoot it every single time I got, I needed to chant that every single game. Like I needed to be reminded, it's not about me, this is about each other, this is about the team. And we express that in that little chant. Now, why, why do I share that with you today? Well, that, that's exactly Paul's point here in this passage. That there is a congregational activity, a congregational chant, if you will, that both expresses our unity and it reinforces our unity. And that activity is something that we do on a weekly basis that we call congregational singing. Look with me at verse 16. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Now, this is a really important verse for our topic today about corporate singing. And what Paul is saying here is he wants, he wants the word of Christ or, or the message about Jesus to dwell so richly in us in a way that, 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 that transforms us with power, not in a superficial way, but, but in a way that penetrates the deepest parts of our being. And he says that the way to do that is by teaching and admonishing one another in our singing, or in some translations, it has through our singing. See, what Paul is saying here is not that the word of Christ dwells in us, in our teaching, in our admonishing, and our singing, as if those three different things are equal, which they are, and you could probably find that in a different verse. But in this passage, Paul is saying that we teach and we admonish one another in and through our singing. In Ephesians 5, Paul unpacks this in a similar way. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another, how? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That the way that we teach and admonish is not just in the preaching, but it is in the singing to one another, the words of Christ. So singing is an important way that we grow. In fact, the Bible contains over 400 references to singing and 50 direct commands to sing. The longest book of the Bible, the Psalms, is a book of songs. And in the New Testament, we are commanded not once, but twice to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another when we meet, both Colossians, 5 and, uh, or Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. In fact, I would go as far as to say that I don't think it's possible to grow as a follower of Jesus unless you are regularly singing the praises of God. And the question is, well, why? Like, why does God command us to sing? Like, why not just pray and preach? Like, why are God's people always singing throughout history? Well, it's because not only is our unity expressed in our singing, but singing is a means by which we edify and we sanctify one another with the words of Christ. And so if our singing is, is that important, what, what should our singing actually look like? Like, when we gather together, what, what should congregational singing be described by. As we close today, I'm going to provide four statements describing our congregational singing. Four statements about our congregational singing because it is that important. Number one, congregational singing is theological and it should be Christ-centered. Paul says that we make the word of Christ dwell within us by teaching and admonishing each other in our singing. And so, we need to make sure that our singing is biblical, is theological, and is Christ-centered. And so we want our songs not just to be biblically true or accurate, but we want our songs to, to point to the beauty of Jesus. We want our songs to be, to be theologically accurate so that that grounds us. So when we experience the storms of life, we are actually grounded in Jesus and in the word. Look, there are there are so many songs out there. Like even over, over the history of the church, so many great songs to sing. There, there are songs that are being produced on almost a weekly basis that are really, really good. 
And I just, I appreciate Tim and his team who labor on a weekly basis trying to discern what are the best songs for our congregation to sing? What are songs that are Christ-centered, that are theologically true, and how can we use these songs to edify the church? That, that team, they're, they're not driven by their own preferences. They're not driven by, by the latest fats, but they're driven by being Christ-centered and word Driven. That, that's part of the aim of what we do corporately together, that this is about Jesus and being faithful and true to his word. I want to share a quote with you by uh, Brett McCracken, who uh, writes for the Gospel Coalition. You could take this quote and even apply it to everything that we do corporately, but he says this about our aim on, uh, to be about Jesus. He says that churches that attempt to accommodate the moving target needs of individual spiritual quests are not doing anyone a favor. By shifting the focus away from the fixed point of Jesus to the fickle, frequently diverging paths of individual churchgoers, churches lose their bearings and become inherently unstable. When a church becomes less about the demands of scripture on individuals and more about the demands of individuals on the church to fit their preferences, favored music style, ideal sermon length, brand of coffee, and so on, it loses its power to transform us and subvert our idols, that it becomes a commodity to be shopped for, consumed, and then abandoned when another shinier, trendier, more relevant option appears. Look, that's part of the reason why, why we wanna be anchored on Jesus and theologically true in our worship and in our singing, but to, to, to kind of focus on on the felt needs or the, the newest fads is gonna lead us down all these other kind of rabbit trails and take the focus off Jesus and the power of his word. This is why it's so important to, to be Christ-focused, not preference-centric, because being Christ-focused assumes that my preferences won't always be met. And look, that is a really, really good thing that the fact that your preferences aren't, aren't met on a weekly basis gives you an opportunity to subvert your idols. That every time there's a certain song that's, that's sung, not exactly how you like, or a song that you may not like in particular, that's another opportunity for you to express, you know what, this song points to Jesus, I'm going to worship anyways, because I'm not preference-driven. I'm not gonna allow that to become an idol. I'm gonna participate because this song talks about Jesus. This song is theologically true. And even though it's not my, my individual taste, I'm still going to participate. It's another opportunity to express that. Well, just to be honest with you, for me as a pastor, I, I have yet to be in a church in which I love 100% of what takes place on a Sunday morning. Even this church, a church that I lead, like I, I walk out of here driving home thinking, yeah, I think I loved about 90% of that. And look, like that's really, really good for me. Like on one level, I don't wanna lead this church and, and shape it around my own preferences. I mean, there, there are times in which a, a song is sung and I'm like, yeah, I wish that was done differently or a different element or even in my own preaching. And, and I'm thinking to myself, that, that's actually a good thing because in those moments, even for me as a pastor, like I have an opportunity to say, you know what? Jesus is more important here. And this song isn't serving me and my preferences, but I know it's serving someone else. And in that, I'm going to rejoice. 
So look, the target though is to be Christ-centered, theologically true, so all of us can participate and lean into our worship. Number two, congregational singing is sanctifying. It's sanctifying. One, one of the surprising aspects of this passage is just learning and seeing how the teaching and admonishing one another is not separate from the singing, but we teach and admonish one another in and through our singing, that that's how the word of Christ dwells in us richly. And so Paul's unpacking here for us a horizontal element and component of worship that we not only sing to God praises, but we sing to one another with worship in our hearts. And this doesn't seem to suggest a back and forth exercise here. It's not we're singing to God and then we're singing to one another, but as we sing to one another the truths about God, we are worshiping God in our hearts. Look, this provides a weight and and a significance for why we sing together. That as you sing to one another the truth of the word, you are participating in the sanctification of the people next to you. You are actually edifying them in your singing, your teaching, your admonishing. Like there's, there's not just one preacher in the room on Sundays. We've got hundreds of preachers and you are preaching and teaching to one another when you sing the truth about who God is. Like that, that's a really important element of why we sing. Because look, there are sometimes on Sundays in which God speaks clearly and powerfully through the preaching of his word. And yet there are other times that God most clearly speaks and most powerfully works through singing. Like I'm sure you've had moments like that. I've had moments like that where I walk away from the worship service and the most powerful thing that God spoke to me about was through the singing of a song. Like there's a, a particular phrase that God just nailed to my heart that I needed to hear. I'm sure you've had that before. There are times in which like we're singing certain songs, like my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And I, I'm singing that and I'm thinking, man, I need to sing that over my soul. Like I forget that. I need to, and I'm, I'm edifying myself, but also I'm hearing hundreds of other voices who are preaching the same truth over my soul and I desperately need that on a week-to-week basis. That you have a responsibility to engage and participate in the sanctification and the edification of the person sitting next to you. And, and no matter if you can hit the pitch right. Like, I, I can't. And yet, you know, making a joyful noise to the Lord does not mean making a noise that's on pitch. It's making a joyful noise from your heart. And so there's no, no excuse not to participate in the singing. Look, and I just wanna encourage you, don't, don't allow your feelings to drive your participation in your worship. Allow your theology to drive your participation in your worship. That feelings are real. They just cannot be authoritative, especially in your singing. That each and every one of us, we, we bring in something into this room, something heavy on our hearts. And it's so easy to become a slave to that and allow that to dictate if you're going to sing and how hard you're going to sing. Now, let me just read this quote by, by one pastor who says that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. That worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. 
that in our singing, we are directing where our feelings and our emotions should actually go based on our theology. That singing has a way of, of connecting truth to our hearts in ways that preaching just can't. Look, it's, it's coming from a preacher there. there. There's something that takes place in our singing that connects what God has to say that reaches the deepest places of our hearts and our souls. Look, and this is a reason why why repetition in our singing can actually be beneficial. Because look, sometimes when we sing, and if we just call a spade a spade this morning, sometimes we, we're like sleep talking when we sing. Like sometimes we say something and we sing something and, and it's just kind of out of habit and we don't always process what we're actually singing. And so what repetition can do in our hearts is if we're singing a song like How He Loves, and we repeat that same phrase, he loves me about a dozen times, and you sing it the first time, he loves me, and you think to yourself, oh yeah, he loves me. And then you sing it a second time, and you think to yourself, yeah, he, he loves me. And then you sing it a third time, and you think, yeah, the, the God of the universe loves me. And then you sing it a fourth time, and, and you're hearing all of these other voices around you, and, and something starts to trigger in your heart where you actually, you, you not only know that it's true, you not only believe that it's true, but you actually start to feel that it's true. That's part of why we repeat certain choruses. It's to kind of push through some of the, the callousness or, or some of the, the, the sleep talking that we tend to fall into. And we sing and we preach and we teach to one another in our singing truth about God that stirs something in our hearts. That's the power of singing. It connects what is true up here to what we want to feel in here. And it closes that gap like nothing else actually does. So congregational singing is sanctifying. Number three, congregational singing is also diverse. It's also diverse. Notice how Paul says, he says to sing what? He says to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And this is really the, kind of the, the roadmap for what we are to sing when we gather together. There should be a diversity in our singing when we gather together. The psalms here refer obviously to the Old Testament that the early church would, would actually use the psalms to sing uh, these are songs that are, that are kind of word-centric, almost verbatim from God's word. And then the hymns here, they, they don't refer to our uh, 1950s Baptist hymnal, okay, that didn't exist when he wrote this, but the hymns here are songs that give praise to God. They could even be festive in nature. And then the spiritual songs, that could be translated as songs from the spirit. And it's kind of hard to translate this phrase in the Greek because it's so, it's so general, but some believe these songs to be more spontaneous, more kind of prompted by the Spirit. And so what we see here, we see a diversity in the type of singing that should take place in the congregational gathering of worship. And yet the Bible nowhere prescribes how many songs of each that we need to do on a weekly basis. But the principle is clear here that our singing songs should serve more than just one preference or category of songs. Now, my best guess of why he's including this in here is because when you have a diversity of, of songs and different ways that it's played, it actually creates an opportunity to live out verses 12 through 15, that some are going to love the Psalms type of songs. Some are gonna like more of the hymns. Some are gonna like the spiritual songs, but few 
are going to love all three. And look, that's okay. That's actually a really good thing that you get to put into practice verses 12 through 15 in the flavor of our unity. And look, this is part of the reason why we don't only sing Hillsong on Sundays. This is why we don't only sing Chris Tomlin. This is why we don't only sing uh, uh, old hymns, but we sing a variety of different songs. And sometimes Tim will sing with a full band. Sometimes we'll have more of a stripped down type of setup here, more acoustic. Other times where he'll kind of just stand back and just let the voices of the congregation sing like he did uh, this morning. Look, part of the purpose of that is to remind us that this is about Jesus. This isn't about our personal preferences and for us to live out verses 12 through 15. But again, if, if a song is not serving your needs, it's probably serving somebody else and it's, that's cause to rejoice. Now last, the fourth thing about congregational singing is that it's an expression of your hearts aimed at glorifying God. Paul says at the end of verse 16 that we sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God, that we sing based on what is in here, that we sing based on kind of what has taken place throughout the week, that it's really hard to to live this out unless you're prepared to engage in corporate worship, which means you need to be worshiping all throughout the week. That worship isn't just something that we do corporately when we're together, but you do this personally in your own time in the Lord. And look, no matter how you best worship God or what songs that best resonates with you, the fact that verse 17 is true means that we worship with passion in our hearts. And that worship is what we see in scripture. Worship is this, is this holistic participation of everything that, that makes up who we are, we should use to worship the Lord. That we worship God with our minds, with our hearts, and even with our bodies. That we worship with our intellect, our, our emotions, and, and physically with, with our bodies. Look, we're really good at the intellect. Like we love to think about what we are singing and we're okay at, at feeling what we're singing. And yet biblically, we are to sing from all three realities. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, he says, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. There's an aspect where when you are worshiping God, something should be stirring within your heart and within your soul because everything that we do is for the name and glory of Jesus, that that's why we gather, that he is our audience. That's why everything that we do and and why we do what we do is to give glory to God. And what that means is that you and I have to fight the battle every single week when we come in here, that we are tempted to process and interpret everything that takes place through the lens of, do I like this? Does this meet my needs? You and I have to fight that every week because verse 17 is true, that we have to fight treating our corporate worship the same way that we treat Ikea or some restaurants. And culture doesn't help us out. Culture has a way of like programming us to think like a consumer and to bring that into the gathering of our church. That culture wants to program us to to want to customize everything around our individual tastes and preferences instead of 
interpreting everything towards how can I rehearse and respond to the gospel today? How, how can I live out the harmony with my brothers and sisters and love on people today? That, that, that should be the mindset that we have when we gather. And so Sundays is about waging war against that anti-gospel consumeristic mentality that do I like this? Does this meet my needs? Every time we gather, we put that mindset to death because it doesn't follow what the people of God should actually live out. That Sundays is about lifting up the name of Jesus for the good of our spiritual growth. So as we close today, I just wanna challenge you with three, three things to kind of rehearse as you drive in here on Sunday mornings. Three things just to keep in mind about our Sunday morning gatherings and worship. Number one, just preach this to yourself that this is about the gospel. That what happens in this room when we gather, this is about rehearsing and responding to the gospel. This is about exalting the name of Jesus and the finished work on the cross, that he paid our penalty, that we want that to be taught, that we want, we want to sing those truths. And so to remind yourself, this is about the gospel. Number two, preach this to yourself that this is not about me. This is not about, as you're driving in here, this is not about me. This is not about my personal preferences. This is not what I want out of Sunday, but this is about God and his glory. And that when you gather with the people of God, this is unlike any other assembly of people and to lean into that and to participate in that. And then number three is just to preach this, this is powerful. Like, this, like what happens in this room is not only beautiful, but it has the power to transform you every time you experience a corporate gathering, corporate worship. And not just in the preaching, but even in the singing as we teach and admonish each other, there is something going on in our souls that God uses the word of Christ to dwell rich, richly in us as we sing with passion and sing from our hearts. Like you need others in order to make harmony. You can't do this with just one voice or one note. You need the body of Christ in order for corporate worship to feed your soul. You need the person next to you. You need the person in front of you. You need the person behind you. And you need what they like. You don't all the time. And you need that because it's a reminder underneath our lives, underneath our singing and in our corporate gatherings, there is a more fundamental truth that Christ is all and in all. And with one harmonious voice, God calls the church to sing. Look, we get to do this every week. Like we get to edify each other in our singing, to belt the truth about who God is to one another. And we get to express and reinforce our unity because of what Jesus's blood has purchased for us. So as we close today, we're gonna have an opportunity to actually put this into practice with a couple more songs and to sing from what's in here and to further edify one another in our scene. So let's pray together and then we'll stand to worship. God, we thank you so much, God, for your word. God, we thank you for how it shapes us and convicts us and it just informs us of what you desire from your people. And God, I pray, Lord, every time we gather together, we are reminded that this is about the gospel, this is not about me, and that this is powerful because you are at work using your word, using your spirit to edify us and to transform us. God, help us to participate in that even as we close today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.